This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 92. And the quote of the day is, Spending today complaining about yesterday won't make tomorrow any better. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And this session is brought to you by Boso Bamboo Drumsticks, the world's first full line of bamboo drumsticks. Actually, the only bamboo drumsticks that are out there. Check them out at bosodrumsticks.com. And if you use the promo code podcast, you can get 15% off your entire order. Bosodrumsticks.com. Also, I want to let you know about something that me and Brian Fraser Moore are doing on Friday, March 6th. We're having a Gig Getting Secrets seminar that Brian and that Brian and I are doing together. It's a 60 minute live online seminar and Q&A with Brian and we'll be going over how to land bigger gigs, what music directors are looking for when hiring musicians, how to make yourself stand out from the crowd and attract the right attention, common mistakes to avoid and much much more and like I said that includes a Q&A session with Brian and I. And if you don't know who Brian is, he just finished the Justin Timberlake tour. He is currently getting ready to go on tour with Madonna. He's toured with Janet Jackson. He has toured with Usher. He has toured with all kinds of people. So he definitely uh, knows what he's talking about when it comes to getting gigs, especially the bigger gigs. So that is Friday, March the 6th. If you're interested in learning more or registering, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash BFM. B is in boy, F is in Frank, M is in Mary. So drummersresource.com forward slash BFM, and you can sign up for that. That's Friday, March 6th. The interview that I have today is with Steve Williams, and Steve is a drummer that's been on been on the scene for years. He started uh, in in the hip hop world, which I didn't realize, and has done everything from you know singer songwriter stuff to working on Broadway, and like I said, all through the hip hop stuff. And he was in a band called Diggable Planets, and a bunch of different stuff. And, and there's something that gets revealed in this podcast, which is actually. Really, really cool. You'll uh, you'll hear it go down in the podcast. So, let's get into it. I'm talking a lot, and uh, I'm I know you want to hear from Steve. So let's get into this interview, Mr. Steve Williams. Steve, what's happening, man? Hey, man. How are you, Nick? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for doing this. It's it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm honored. Absolutely, man. So. Uh, as the listeners know, I always like to get the backstory on the drummers that are on the show because, you know, some people, you know, we don't know every drummer that's out there and we try to find every, all of them, but there's some that, that we may know and some that we may not. So do me a favor, just tell the audience a, a, a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, what you do. Okay. I'm Steve Williams. I'm a freelance drummer, composer, producer, beat maker, uh, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, I've been playing drums for various different people in and around New York and also around the world with various different recording artists that I've worked with over the past 20 years, 25 years. Um, went to school, Berkeley School of Music, met a bunch of uh, incredible musicians there who've become lifelong friends and learned a great deal from them. Uh, especially drummers, some of them, Marvin Smitty-Smith, Jeff Watts, <clears throat> Will Calhoun, 
<clears throat> and just so many, many, many others. Um, and I think that's it for now. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a long list uh, in that thirty to forty five seconds. So uh, yeah. I wouldn't say that's it to that. I think that's a, a quite an accomplishment. And we're going to dig into to all the stuff of of who you played and or you know who you played with and, and all that stuff. It's cool. I didn't realize that you were from Baltimore. I actually spent yes. uh, a lot of time down there. A buddy of mine lives down there. I'm originally from Philadelphia. So ah okay. So so that's close for me. So same deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Going up to Philly because I was thinking because Philly, you know, Philly was a base town, you mm-hmm. know, and yes, <laughs> it, for I don't know why, but I mean, there's a, a a slew of great drummers that came out of Philly. I mean, there's you know, Lil John and Brian Fraser yep. Moore and all those guys, uh, Quest, Quest Love, of course. Yep. Yeah, he's the only one I haven't had on the show from Philly, man. I've got I got like all the Philly cats, but uh, okay. Um, so who were some of the Baltimore cats? I'm thinking like. Well, obviously, the first and foremost is uh, Dennis, Dennis Dennis Chambers. Yeah. There's another drummer named Lorinda Featherstone, mm-hmm. uh, a guy named Larry Bright, um, Larry. another guy named Sp- Scotty Pika, who is the splitting image of Tony Williams, hmm. uh, but just incredible, incredible drummer. Uh, and the many other ones I can't even recall right now, but those are the... The, the, the ones cats. that were the main cats that were like very, very influential on you. my playing, especially Dennis and uh, Lorenda Featherstone. I got you. Yeah. So let's let's walk down that that road a little bit of how you got into playing and, and you know, how old you were and how you really got the drumming bug. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I started, you know, like a lot of kids who who, uh, you know, you fantasize about playing drums. I got a drum kit when I was probably eight or nine years old and I wanted one because my cousin had gotten one. And, uh, and then I started playing drums in the church and my father's gospel quartet. Hmm. And, uh, and I just got the bug, you know, playing gospel music. And then it went from gospel to jazz and to many other different areas. And how old were you when you started playing? You said eight. Nine. 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 Yeah. So now was there a uh was there some some uh resistance from your parents playing secular music? Because I know a lot of guys that I didn't grow up uh, you know, playing gospel or, right. or in a gospel home. Um, but I know a lot of people say that they got a they got a lot of resistance from their parents for playing secular music. Yeah, yeah. In the beginning, yes, a little bit because uh, you know, they just they thought, uh, oh, my kid's gonna go into you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll, and, <laughs> right. and and just throwing drugs and being delinquent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And uh, no, but you know, I showed serious interest. You know, first in order in order for me to uh, to get a drum set, I told my parents I wanted a drum set. They said, "You want a drum set? All right, you got to work for it." Mm-hmm. So I got a little paper out, and and I was a caddy at a golf course. Nice. <laughs> so I was. After school, serving papers and then running to a golf course to be a caddy. And, uh, you know, I didn't make enough money to buy a drum kit. So my parents saw that I was serious and really wanted to do this. So they, you know, they bought me a drum kit. Mm -hmm. And then the bug took over. And then I started playing in the little, you know, elementary school band. And then the junior high school band, the high school band. So there wasn't a great deal of resistance. Um, uh, But, you know, they, they had some concern. Sure. 
Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> for some reason, you know, parents don't think there's a there's a gray area. You know, it, right. it's like he's either going to be really good or really bad. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like he's either going to you know be in jail or he's going to be the president. There's nothing exactly. you can't do anything in between. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> we have to change that. Uh, we we do have to change that. Yeah. Um. I think that you know there's there's a little bit more acceptance of the different styles of music now. But you know, I remember um, one of my relatives was really into like heavy metal, and his uh-huh. parents were like really concerned about it. Right. You know, and it's like, right. why? What do you right. you know? There's there's these negative stereotypes, and and he actually uh, went to MIT, and you know, super bright and super successful now. And yeah, unfortunately. That's what most people <clears throat> will. Uh, most people will get the, those negative stereotypes yep. about any style of music or any musician that decides to play music for a living. Unless you're a classical musician, right? <clears throat> you know, if you're a classical musician, that seems to be acceptable. You know, across the board, and and you won't be a delinquent. But right. I met some of the craziest musicians I've ever met in my life were classical musicians. Sure, sure. So, <laughs> but once again, that's you know society's um uh perception or mm-hmm. of uh what musicians are supposed to be like from various different styles of music right it's so funny when when i started coming up through uh you know started coming up through the music industry and like started hanging out backstage and then you know touring and being backstage uh-huh. and you're like man this isn't all it's cracked up. not that i i love it i'm not saying that but you're right. You're thinking it's going to be like all this crazy stuff and, you know, you're backstage and you come out and your friends are like, what's going on back there? And you're like, uh, there's a couple guys sitting around eating a sandwich and right. you know, that's about it. Like everybody's getting ready to play the show. It's not like. Right. That also depends on the tours you're on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, so now were you, when you were coming up and you were, you're playing gospel and so obviously you're learning in church, but were you, you also playing or taking private lessons as well or were you self-taught or it was when i first started playing it was just all self-taught you know learning mm-hmm. what my cousin learned who who had taken a few lessons and uh and i did take some some initial um snare drum lessons from uh, a music teacher who worked at a church and he was giving uh you know music lessons so he could he could basically teach you how to hold the sticks properly some of the rudiments long stroke and double stroke rolls, um, things of that nature. And, and, but once I got to junior high school, which is when I started taking, uh, music lessons. And then I started going to <clears throat> a place called the Peabody Conservatory and they had a preparatory for kids. And we're in, in the preparatory, which is where I really started learning, um, traditional snare drum, uh, skills, reading, um, playing other instruments like marimbas, vibe, timpani. Mm -hmm. And that was all probably starting around the age of 14, I think. Mm -hmm. 14, 15, yeah. And that went on throughout high school. Now, how do you think that shapes your playing? Um, It gave me a really good, uh, solid foundation when it came to playing uh, um classical stuff as well as just music theory in general mm-hmm. a little bit of music theory in general you know playing timpani you have to you have to know intervals between notes you have to know what the notes are um and even in the preparatory at a young age you know you, you're taught all of that stuff 
Right. Um, but, you know, like anything else, when you don't utilize those skills, you start looting, losing those. Mm-hmm. So when I went back to when I went to Berkeley, that's where they all got reinforced and um, kind of solidified. And that all helps when it comes to playing music uh, on a professional level. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Any type of music, you know, anything, even if, even if you're taking piano lessons and, you know, in college I had to, I did all of that stuff. I had to play piano yeah. and marimba and African percussion ensembles and Brazilian right. percussion ensembles and all that yeah. stuff. Um, which, you know, it's funny because you, you're playing these things at the time and you're so inside of it. So you're playing like, you know, some Brazilian stuff, but then later on you're listening to music or you're playing something else that kind of has the same feel and you can kind of pull from that information and, right. you know, and, and start to, start to interweave that into your playing, which I think is, it's super important. And Oh, definitely. I wish I would have realized it more when it was going down though. I think, you know, you, you don't, you don't think about, uh, the practicality of, of, uh, learning those skills and those different styles of music when you're at a very young age, right? you know, Mm -hmm. um, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, even 20, 21, you don't, you don't realize how long that information um, will suit you and help you in other musical situations, just right. playing for a singer songwriter, um, having all those skills and knowing how to play skills such as time feels and just the feel of the music. Um, all of, yeah, it's just super, super helpful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we yeah. all wish we knew, we all wish we, uh, would have taken advantage of, uh, those skills when we did at younger ages, but yeah. you know, Totally. There's, yeah. you know, another thing that I'll never forget for college, they, mm-hmm. um, I've, I don't even remember who it was, came in and did a master class, but the most important message I got, he said, you will never have more time to practice than you do right now. That's so true. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean, man? I'll have all the time. I can practice whenever I want. That's so true. And I, you know, and every, every time I'm practicing, I think about that. Like, you know, when I was in, when I was in college, I was practicing like six, eight hours a day, but then yep. some days I would blow it off and, you know, it wouldn't practice kind of like everybody else. But, right. you know, thinking back now, he's like, oh man, he was so right. He was yep. so right. You that's never so true. Have. So anybody that's listening out there that's, you know, in high school or, or college or just listen up, you will never have more practice or more time to practice than you do right now. That is so true. So now before you went to Berkeley, did you always, mm-hmm. did you know that, hey, man, this is going to be a career for me? This is like this is exactly where I'm going to go. I think at about 15, 16 years old, that's when I decided this is what I want to do. And then decided, yeah. now I got to get serious about it. Yeah. And then, you know, I started taking more theory lessons in high school as well as, you know, being taught at the preparatory, mm-hmm. Peabody Preparatory and started getting more serious about learning theory taking a couple of piano less, you know, piano classes and all of that just, uh, just intensified when I got to Berkeley a little more. Awesome. So I always like to bridge the gap between going to, you know, whether you're going to Berkeley or going to college or deciding, okay, I'm going to go down this path Uh and bridging that gap between, you know, being at Berkeley, graduating from Berkeley or leaving Berkeley, depending on what you did and really, making this into a career. Right. Um, so what were some of the steps that you took or what were some of the approach that some of the approaches that you had to really, you know, turn this into a career rather than just an expensive hobby? Uh, steps as far as going to college and, and learning as much as practical knowledge that I could get. 
from uh, college. Um, I think those are the first informative steps other than the, my earlier studies at Peabody uh, and, you know, the little lessons that you take in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but at Berkeley, you know, I really wanted to learn uh, what professional drummers needed to know when you wanted to be a freelance drummer. You mm-hmm. know, I wanted to, to, to play all styles of music or most styles of music. And I wanted to be able to be, you know, I wanted to be a good reader. So, um, a lot of the times when you pick up drum books, you don't, they don't really tell you how to interpret a chart. Right. And you don't get to learn those situations. You don't get to learn those things until you get out into the real world. So one of the things that I had a a problem with, with learning, you know, drum set studies at Berkeley was that they were teaching you all this information from all these great books, but it was like, how do you apply this to, uh, you know, a professional working situation. Like, you know, I want to go and play a gig on Broadway. Is this chart going to look from in the, the chart in this book? Is it going to look like the chart that I'm going to see on Broadway? Right. Well, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and these things, they're like practical things that, that um, and sometimes in formal studies when it comes to drums and percussion that you just don't learn. So when you get into the real world, um, sometimes you're lucky and you can, get over those humps and sometimes you fail and you know you pay the consequences of not being prepared for those particular situations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so a lot of it all is trial and error but is learning as much as i could possibly learn at berkeley with through my peers from my peers because i had some great 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 peers to learn from um a lot of them were you know a couple of years ahead of me um some of them were in the same classes but not just drummers but but bass players, uh, uh, sax players, trumpet players. I got to play with some great people like uh, Donald Harrison, alto sax player, mm-hmm. Victor Bailey, nice, another Philly guy, mm-hmm. um, oh, Wallace Roney, just so many, many great, 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 great musicians, Branford Marcellus, um, that I got a chance to play with and learn. You know, mm-hmm. you, get, you, get, you get that, that Berkeley-provided uh an opportunity to learn from some other great, great, great young musicians. Sure. And, and not only learn, but you know, what to study and what not to study. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are valuable, valuable lessons. So after leaving Berkeley, absorbing all that information, you know, something that all, everyone always tells you as a, as a young kid, play as much as possible. And when you play as much as possible, that creates experiences um, not only experience, but experience playing. And, uh, when you, you have a great deal of experience, it helps you in, in various different situations, playing professional playing situations. Sure. So I hope that answers the question. It does. And, and the reason why I asked that question, um, I typically mm-hmm. ask every guest that is because everyone has a different journey. Um, you know, and every, there's no, there's no silver bullet to say, Hey man, this is, you know, this is exactly what you need to do and, you know, and follow these seven steps and you'll do it. So I always like to get the perspective of, you know, how, cause everybody's story is different. Some people are like, man, I don't know. I just, I've been touring since I was eight, you know, and and that's all I've ever done. And some people have a a, a different way about, you know, I just interviewed Calvin Rogers and, Uh and he was great, a fantastic gospel drummer. 
Right. And, you know, he was going down the R&B road for a while, and he said, you know, this isn't where I want to go. I want to go in gospel, and people told him that he couldn't do it and, uh-huh. and all this stuff. So, you know, everybody has their own journey is what I'm trying to say. So that's why I right. really wanted to to hear your um, your perspective on it. Now, you had mentioned something that kind of that piqued my interest a little bit, and you said uh-huh. um, think what to study and what not to study. Um, uh-huh. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Can you unpack that? Because I, I, I would love to hear uh, some of that stuff. Right. I think um, in school, you know, curriculums may have changed since I went to Berkeley, but, you know, a lot of times they teach you uh, various different techniques that help your independence, um, that help your overall chops. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're young and you're, you know, you want to play and just blaze, you just think about chops and which is great. And some gigs you you get on, people want to hear that and people want to see that. But sometimes when you're playing in professional situations, they want you to make a simple beat feel great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, the you intangible know, feel. Exactly. And you don't see, at least I didn't see a lot of that in books um, that, that, you know, various different method books that I had to play um, growing up. You didn't, and you don't, that's something that's not drilled into you. But I also had... Uh, you know, one of my major influences was Dennis Chambers. Mm-hmm. And Dennis, uh, I knew him as a, you know, a kid. And I would just go over to his house and listen to, you know, he would just say, okay, let's listen to some music. And he would just play all these different kinds of, you know, music. You know, he could play and recite to you the whole Blue Note collection. Right. And, you know, he could hear Philly Joe Jones and tell you what what session it was, who else was on the session. Then he could turn around and play Frank Zappa. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, he can't read music, right? No, Dennis doesn't right. read. That's what I thought. Dennis, Dennis has total recall. He can hear something once and damn near play it back to you perfectly. It's insane. It's ridiculous. But one of the, the, the most important things that he said to me was like, he said, uh, you know what? And this was years later after, you know, he was out playing with P-Funk and he started playing to a lot of people. He said, you know what? I play everything else that everybody else plays. He goes, you know what the difference is? It's the placement. It's mm. the feel. It's my feel. He goes, work on your feel. Right. I- and and that's, for me, that's when I started, you know, going away from playing all these different techniques and just playing, trying to play a bunch of chops. Right. Which is, once once again, great. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but... In order to work in 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 New York City, um, you have to have, you have to be a little versatile. Sure, you have to be able to play uh, different fields of music. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And now I I know the listeners are like, all right, here comes the next question. They already know what it's going to be. So how uh-huh. did you work on your feel? Because I'm like, I'm infatuated and obsessed with groove and feel. I mean, that's right. just like, I, I, I'm almost like detriment to myself. Like that's all I work on. <laughs> Here is, uh, this is what, uh, and for me, I'm still working on it. It's a, it's a never ending thing. Um, and one of the things that Dennis taught me to do was you put a, you know, it's a simple, simple exercise where you put a click on and you can play from the slowest tempo at, you know, the quarter note at 35 mm-hmm. and you just try and play a simple beat to 35 and then you can play turn the click up to 160 or 180 and you try and play a simple beat 
at that tempo. Mm -hmm. And you do this every day, every day, over and over and over and over. What it does, at some point, it develops your internal clock. Right. So when somebody clicks off a beat, you just automatically feel it in your bones, in your body, and you can lock into that. Mm -hmm. You know, also playing that beat at slow tempos, you play fills, you know, uh, you can play, you know, let's say a four-bar pattern, and at the end of the four-bar pattern, the last bar, play a fill for a whole bar. And, you know, when you're doing that at at that click set at 35 or 38, it gets, you know, that's a real test It is <laughs> to your concept and your idea of feel and time. I totally agree. This yeah. morning, I actually, I took uh, just, you know, like, Two and four on the snare, one uh -huh. and three on the kick, eighth notes on right. the hi-hat, and I played right. at 60 beats a minute for 200 bars and then bumped it up to 64 and played another 200 bars. And, right. You know, it's 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 not as easy. And and I, I shouldn't say it's not as easy as it sounds because it's easy, but to make sure that, you know, all every eighth note is lining up where it's supposed to, every right. snare drum, the kick, making it sound uniform, That's it's hard. It's really hard. And yeah. then learning how to play on top of that click at that mm -hmm. tempo and playing behind the click. Right. Um, all of that is vitally, vitally important. But, you know, a lot of those things, even though I heard them as, as a, you know, as a youngster, when I got older, as I got a little older, I didn't focus on those things as much as I focused on those things. Right. And um, so I had I got into a point where I got out there and it was working. And, you know, there are situations in which, you know, my time was like horrible. You know, it was good, but it wasn't great. Right. So I had to go back to the drawing board and remember those lessons that that Dennis had uh, taught me, and as well as reading reading as much information on playing to a click as possible. Mm -hmm. And I I think that a lot of people will you know they'll take that groove and they'll sit down and they'll play just like a simple like two four thing you know uh -huh. and just sit down and be like it's you know and say okay I can play this groove. So right. let me move on to the next thing, you know, and that's, I want to stress that that's not what we're talking about. We're talking no. about the, uh, the accuracy of everything. And, and like we said, like maybe move, pushing the snare or, or dragging the snare or pushing right. the kick and all that right. stuff. So then you get into just maybe adding an accent to the hi-hat and then now everything changes, you know, that's, exactly. that's where the, exactly. that's where the beauty comes in. Exactly. And though that's a fundamental lesson of being a drummer. Because when you're playing in a pop situation, or I don't care, any kind of situation in which you're playing with a band, it's kind of the, you know, it's everybody's responsibility to play decent time. But it's, you know, mainly most people look at at the drummer as the main person in keeping and setting uh, the tempo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, it's a fundamental lesson that, you know, you will play in every style of music. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, so, um, yeah, that, time yeah. is always important. Oh, super, super, <laughs> especially when you, you get out there and you start working with various different, you know, styles of music on a professional level. Mm -hmm. Super important. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Now, yeah. now is correct me if I'm wrong, but most of your work is on Broadway, right? No, not all of it. No, no I just do Broadway every now and then. Okay. Um, Today I've been, you know, now I've been working with a, a few different uh, singers and songwriters. Uh, but my work in the past, uh, in the 90s, I was thoroughly entrenched in the hip-hop world. 
uh, and before really? the hip hop world. Yeah, I was. Uh, uh, I used to be in a group called the Diggable Planets. Man, I, you listen. I'm I'm young and I'm a white kid from the burbs, uh, but that's what I grew up listening to all that stuff. Yeah. So and I listened I was, to Diggable Planets and EPMD and Eric B and Rock yep. and that's what I. Yep, I was thoroughly entrenched in that world. Really, and I was in that group for since the beginning of it. Um, but before what? that, yeah, before that, dude, I, I never even knew. I'm embarrassed that I didn't know that. Oh, it's all right. That's no awesome. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, before that, I played for Vanilla Ice. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> yes. Wait a minute. We got to talk about this now <sighs> because you may be the guy that I'm looking for. Okay. First concert I ever went to in my entire life, Vanilla uh, Ice. I was in fourth grade. Yeah. A band called Riff opened up for him. It was at the Tower Theater. And in Philly? Yes. I remember that. You were on that show? Yes. Let me tell you this. You are the person that inspired me to play the drums. No. I swear to God. I've been looking really? I've been looking for you. I'm Oh snap. I am I, I am not lying to you. You are the guy that I that inspired me to play the drums. You did a drum solo. Yes. At the Vanilla Ice concert <laughs> at the Tower Theater. And I was there in fourth oh. grade. Snap. Yep. Wow. How you like that? Wow. Yeah, man. I've I swear I've been looking for I actually I'll I'll show it to you after we after we uh get off. I'm gonna show you the picture yeah. I put up on Facebook because I said I I was looking for this band Riff, who actually I didn't know was the band that sang or the group that sang Lean on Me in the bathroom scene. Yes. Yeah, yes. those cats. Yeah. Yep. So I found this old card. Um, at my parents' house in a scrapbook, right. uh-huh. and it was it was a riff uh, like the tour card, right? Right. And it had all the dates on the back of it, and they were super cool. Like I got, I, I was out after they had played. Um, I went out into like the little foyer area, and uh-huh. I was like, oh man, I was I really love you guys, and I was all into like Bobby Brown then, and right. like, you know used to like dance and sing around my house, and sure, and uh, and they brought me to the front of the line, and uh-huh. like. Got my, you know, I got my autograph from him and got a picture taken with him and everything. But right. that was, uh, so that was you, man. So, so thank yeah. you. Oh, well, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> small world. That is a small world. That's absolutely amazing. Wow. wow. Blows my mind. Incredible. I feel like I gotta, I gotta take a step back here for a minute. It's yeah, crazy how things, here. it's crazy how things come full circle, man. Yes. You know, but absolutely, man, you were, Definitely you were the one. You were the one that did it. Oh wow, man! You did this that drum solo, and if I can't, if I if I remember correctly, I feel like you're you had like I don't know if your sticks glow in the dark or there was like some some maybe it was just black lighting and looked like your sticks were glowing in the dark. Yeah, that was lighting. Yeah, I just used regular sticks. Yeah, yeah that was lighting at that. Yeah, yeah. I just I remember. I don't. I just I can picture it in my head right now. It's amazing. Yeah, that was a fun gig for me. Actually, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, uh, Vanilla Ice was actually a re- is is actually a really 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 nice guy, and he was just in a you know unusual situation in which <clears throat> here he is a white guy doing rap or hip hop music, right? And he just literally went from being you know a kid in in Dallas, in a poor suburb or poor county of Dallas, to a major international superstar within the period of six months. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you're 19 years old. That would screw anybody up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you have, you know, next thing you know, you have everybody around you, uh, you know, being a yes man. It would just 
screw with anybody's head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Ice was uh, also, uh, you know, he did a lot for rap music. <clears throat> Other than, you know, MC Hammer and, and Vanilla Ice at that particular time, I don't think there were too many rap artists that were selling millions of records right. <clears throat> at that particular time. And um, what they did was, you know, whether you want to say their music is valid or not, or whether it was original, uh, what they did was they they opened a lot of ears to a lot of kids to what hip-hop or rap is. Mm -hmm. And when those kids grew up, you know, they started checking out, you know, usually other rappers. Right. Or more hardcore rap. Mm -hmm. And after that, that's when you had, you know, it was it become it became a common occurrence where rappers were selling millions of records. Yeah. But before those two, it wasn't it wasn't quite that way. Not to say that it wasn't. You know, Run Run DMC might have sold probably sold millions of records before then. Right. But um <clears throat> They hammer and vanilla ice. They just made it acceptable for all the little suburban kids, right, 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 and it and for their parents to, uh, you know, say it's okay for them to listen to that music, right. And I mean, they exposed the whole the whole white audience to to hip hop. Yes, yes, you know, yeah. Which is, and, it's funny that that MC Hammer did that, but I guess the the reason with him was he was he kind of he and Vanilla Ice. I don't want to say that they were. Let me think of the word that I'm looking for, because because they weren't like they weren't like N.W.A. or or you no. know like Easy E or anything like that. They were right. they were uh, they were easily digestible, you know, and it was it yes. was fun and and you could dance to it and you know it wasn't like Public Enemy or you know something like that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And actually, it was a, a, a black rapper. Um, uh, man, I can't think of the brother's name. Uh, KS1. KRS1, yeah. KRS1. Yeah, KRS1 said, actually, you know, during that whole time ICE was, you know, blowing up and people were hating on ICE. And KRS1 said, you know what? <clears throat> Most rappers should be uh, uh, glad that there is a vanilla ICE because he is opening the door for a lot of black rappers or black uh, hip hop artists to, to, you know, get a bigger piece of that pie and sell millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. he's, he's opening the ears up of a lot of young people. Yeah. And musically, it was cool because, you know, a lot of the drums that I played were live drums. Right, right, right. And I played to a click. Uh, and I samp I was triggering uh, a lot of the sounds from the record. At that particular time, everything was in a Akai sampler. But a lot of the, all the sounds, I was triggering those sounds and or playing them live hmm. and that was unusual yeah <clears throat> oh even then time. it was yes well i mean i guess you and, had djs and then yes you had djs um and most people had djs or the stuff was on pro tools or adats yeah <laughs> that was the format then um but a lot of the stuff i played live triggered triggered live hmm. so how did you yeah. get so so was vanilla ice after diggable planets Vanilla Ice was before Diggable Planets. Okay. That's what um, I was thinking. I was like... Yeah. That was before Diggable Planets. And before Vanilla Ice, I was kind of in the R&B world. And my first R&B artist I played with was a guy named Will Downing. And then a, a woman from England named Misha Paris. Oh, uh, yeah. I uh, a f My friend was the guitar player for Misha for a while, Jeff Washington. Yes. You know Jeff? I, we were in the same band. I still... I, I play with him now. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
The world's getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> yeah, man. Je <laughs> Jeffrey Washington. Yes, sir. Yes. We yeah. were in the same band. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And after that, um, one of the remixers on uh, uh, Will Downing's record, mm -hmm. a woman named Gail King, who was <clears throat> remixing Vanilla Ice Records, and she called up Will and said, hey, need a, they want a drummer from New York. <laughs> <laughs> so Will asked me, he said, hey, man, you want a gig with this guy named Vanilla Ice? I'm like, no. I'm like, who is Vanilla Ice anyway? I thought I'd be just an R&B drummer, right? And then uh, 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 I called a friend of mine who's kind of like, you know, another kind of mentor to me at the time. His name was Ralph Rowe. He's a great drummer who plays with Nile Rodgers right now. Mm. And he was like, you better take that gig. <laughs> so I took the gig and it just blew up. It was just, you know, crazy. Wow. Nuts. But a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. So then it went... that, Go ahead. After that, then came after the Vanilla Ice, then came the Diggable Planets, which went on for uh, a few years. <clears throat> and that whole that that was a whole nother ball game because there was no uh, hip hop artist, or I can't recall any hip hop artist that had kind of a band playing. Yeah, I mean they had like the, the upright bass player and everything. Yep, upright yeah. bass player, and they had a DJ, uh, a cat named King Brit from Philly. Mm -hmm one of the best uh, DJs in the world, he was spinning acetates. Now, these were, you know, wax-printed, you know, yeah, albums, yeah. but they would only have, like, the ride symbol on it or it might have horn stabs on it. And uh, it created a certain effect, but it also made King, like a musician, a, it made a DJ, the whole concept was to make a DJ a part of the band as opposed to somebody just spinning a record. Hmm. So King could comp with one record, make cuts, comping like a a keyboard player playing jazz. Wow. And um, yeah, that was a whole nother thing, which was which was incredible. Huh. Yeah. I never knew that. Yes. That is yep. pretty incredible. Yeah. And that was the brainchild of Ishmael Butler, who was the mm -hmm. created, he created the Diggable Planets. Yeah. Yep. Huh. Man, my mind is my mind's blown right now because of all these things that have come full circle. Talking to you and the, all the the history that you have, and you're we're talking all this down, and I'm like remembering this stuff happening, you know, from an outsider's perspective. So it's cool to hear uh, to hear your perspective from being on the inside of it. Yeah! Wow! Yeah, I'm blown away as well. <laughs> vanilla Ice. You saw me with Vanilla Ice. Yes, oh. I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, it's funny that now that we mention all this, because I feel like Jeff told me that it was you. Mm -hmm. I feel like now that he may have, or I think he said, I don't know if it was him or not, but I know that he played with him for a little while. Yeah. So, so I don't, you know. Either way, it's pretty pretty awesome. I'm, I'm glad that that we uh, that we hooked up, man. This is great. Definitely. So what? Definitely. So where did it move after that? So you went your because I'm now now you got me fascinated with this whole hip hop thing. So uh, after uh, the Diggable Planets, it, I started doing work for even during the Diggable Planets. I started doing work for uh, various other rappers, De La Soul, mm -hmm. PM Don, um, and then after that, I started working with. Um, guy named Ivan Neville yeah. from the Neville Brothers. Mm -hmm. And Ivan is a great, great, uh, you know, organ player. 
but he's an all-around musician. He plays incredible drums, uh, bass, guitar. And I want to say Ivan is kind of like the person who kind of taught me how to play rock and roll. Oh, really? Yes. Hmm. Ivan is an incredible... Uh, well, first of all, you know, drummers coming out of New Orleans are just, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> right. <laughs> you that's know, as all, far as That's steel. like where it started, man. You know, yes. They got yes. it all figured out. Yes. And Ivan was, at the time, doing kind of a... He was doing kind of a, a rock and roll project. So I went from playing hip-hop to learning how to play and play rock and roll with Ivan Neville. Hmm. And Ivan had did two solo records, which, you know, one of my idols, both of them, Charlie Jordan, Charlie Drayton and Steve Jordan had played his records, previous records. <clears throat> I'm a big Steve Jordan fan. Yes. Same here. And, um, and so I started working with Ivan for about two years and, uh, and then from, I did a little record. I don't think the record came out, but, Keith Richards had played a bunch of stuff on the record. A guy named Nico Bolas, incredible engineer, did the record. Hmm. Um, and then from there, there was a little bit of uh, the Broadway stuff. I'd started subbing on a show called Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk. Mm-hmm. Um, then from Ivan Neville, I went into uh, uh, playing with an artist on Virgin named Chocolate Genius. His name is Mark Anthony Thompson, who is an incredible uh, musician. He kind of sounds like uh, Bobby Womack, Bob Dylan, and Tom Waits rolled into one. Really? He's, yeah, he's pretty incredible. You should check out his records. I'm, and his writing, records, I'm writing it down right now. Yeah. His records were done on uh, <clears throat> Virgin, uh, and Abe Laboreal did his – actually, Abe did most of his records, I think. Yeah, and then from there, I started working with Sade. And, oh, nice. Uh, and I met them through the Diggable Planets because the Diggable Planets opened up for them on one of their tours. And we all became friends, and and then I started doing a little work for them. It was a, a promotional tour <clears throat> that it went for quite a while, actually. Hmm. Um, and from there, the... David Byrne. I did a record for David Byrne. Oh, man. Um, which was uh, great uh, to play with those guys. Uh, Mauro Rafusco, the percussionist, who's an incredible musician. And he also has the group called Foro in the Dark. Mm-hmm. What, when and was that? What, what uh, David Byrne record were you on? This was the record called Grown Backwards. I'm trying to think yeah. when that... What year did that come out? This was... Ooh, 2004 2000 yeah 2004 that's what i was thinking 2005 yeah yeah i remember when that record came out because i was i was actually uh one of the bands i played and we played a lot of talking head stuff so oh really yeah that's why Uh, i remember okay yeah i played a bunch of stuff on that record um and then you know various different record projects throughout that whole period i also worked with Peebo bryson for a Mm -hmm. bit um and then a little bit more Broadway. So it's been kind of like all over the place. I like it. Yeah. It's I like been it. all over the place. That's awesome. You got to, you know, I, you got to keep things moving and keep them changing and, and, and shift. I mean, for me anyway, I know that I like doing different things. I work, I like working with different people, uh-huh. I like playing different styles of stuff because one, I think it keeps you on your chops. And two, I just, I get, I don't want to say I get bored, but you know, right. I, I like, I like change. Change is good. Sure. Definitely, you know? without a doubt. 
So what's <clears throat> what's on tap for you now? Uh, <clears throat> I've been doing a little more production stuff, producing mm-hmm. <clears throat> producing a record for a young lady named Julia Haltigan. Um, also doing a little co-production for a guy named Tyler Lyle. Mm-hmm. And these are records that will be coming out this year. Um, playing for various artists, another woman named Kristen Diable from New Orleans. She's on 30 Tigers and her record's coming. I didn't do her record. Um, I'm just doing live dates with her up here in the Northeast. Um, but she has an incredible record. Um, and a guy named, uh, what's his name? David Cobb, producer in Nashville. Yeah, I know that name. Yeah, he produced, uh, Jason Isabel. Mm Mm-hmm which is an incredible artist. And he did some great work with this woman, Kristen, who's a great singer, great artist, great person as well. Um, <clears throat> just record projects that I've done last year that are coming out this year. Another woman named Rebecca Jordan, who's a great writer for a bunch of different people, John Legend, Kelly Clarkson. Hmm. She's written uh, tunes for these people, and she has her own thing coming out this year. Oh, okay. uh, the guy Tyler Lyle as well. He's written for quite a few um, great, great artists, the Dixie Chicks and many others. Hmm. So these people have their own records coming out this year. Right. So now, do you be, typically play on these live dates too, or you do? You... I think for these these people, I will be. Yeah. Uh, I'll be doing a lot of their live dust uh, live dates. Uh, a lot of it depends on scheduling mm-hmm. right now, um, but I think so. I'm going to try to. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So do you to. do you uh, do you teach privately as well? Every once in a, every, every once in a while, I'll give lessons. Yeah, uh, but I haven't been um, I haven't been getting into, or I haven't had the opportunity to do a great deal of teaching. I was also right. I was teaching actually at a little uh, community school called Ifeteo here in Brooklyn, and Ifeteo is kind of like a little academy that parents you know pay a fee to have their kids go and. They, get cultural lessons they get music lessons they get oh, acting cool. lessons and the, so that was fun but it couldn't it wasn't too flexible when it came to my schedule sure, sure. so it was kind of hard to keep that thing going right that makes sense yeah so where can people yeah. go to uh to learn more about you if they're if they want to you know follow and keep up with what you're doing uh right you know right now i still i haven't even had a, the time to put up a proper uh website mm-hmm. so facebook Okay. is probably hey man that's the, where everybody the, is anyway exactly that's facebook is you know you can find me on facebook and that's stephen williams in brooklyn there's a lot of stephen williams it's a generic american name <laughs> but uh stephen williams in brooklyn um and usually i will post stuff i'm not great at posting you know what i'm doing and uh where i'm at but I'm, I'm, it's a challenge, <laughs> you know, it's a challenge. Hey, we got, you know, th- you got to have some weakness. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of my big flaws. Yeah. Well, it happens to the best of us. So, yeah. Yes. But Steve, man, thank you so much for uh, for taking all this time to chat with me today. It was really an honor to to chat with you. And now that I know that you were the guy that inspired me to play the drums, it means so much more to me to have you on the show. So I really appreciate wow, it. Wow, man. I am like freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also want to give a shout out to the companies. Absolutely. Uh, this gear that I use, Peisty Symbols, first and foremost. And that's who, that's where we met at the Peisty booth, Tim Shahady. Introduced exactly, me. yes. Yeah. I've been playing Peisty Symbols for over 
20, 24 years. Awesome. And uh, they've always been really, really good to me. And I've just loved the cymbals. Um, started using them after I heard Jack D. Jeanette playing. There you and go. Art Blakey. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and Pearl Drums as well. Great, great company. I've been playing those for as well for over 24 years. And then Vic Fair Sticks, Evans, Drumheads, Gator Cases, uh, Drum Cack Products. And there we have it. Cool. Yeah. Well, like I said, it was uh, it was really great great to have you on the show, man. We should we should definitely keep in touch, man. Once it once it warms up or something, maybe I'll maybe I'll come to Brooklyn. We can hang. Definitely, without a doubt. Cool. Yes. Man. Awesome. Thank you again, man. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, Steve. Great. Thanks All for right. having me on, Nick. Thank you. Take care, man. Bye bye. Bye bye. There you have it, Mr. Steve Williams, the first drummer that I ever saw live and the first, you know, the drummer that inspired me to play. It was so amazing to have him on the show. It was so amazing to talk to him, to thank him for the inspiration. And I totally did not see that coming in the podcast or in the interview, I should say. So completely awesome to have him on the show. Like I said, uh, it's, it's funny talking about it now. It just kind of blows my mind. To check out the show notes of all the stuff that Steve and I talked about in the interview, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session 92. Also, if you didn't hear in the beginning, Brian Frazier Moore and I are doing a gig getting secrets session this Friday, March 6th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it is a live Q&A seminar with Brian and myself. And we'll tell you everything you need to know about getting big gigs, how to attract the right attention, what music directors are looking for when hiring musicians, and much, much more. And again, you'll have you, it's a live Q&A, so you'll be able to ask as many questions as you want and get them answered by myself and by Brian. And it is a 60-minute seminar, live online seminar. Check it out. For more information, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash BFM, as in Brian Frazier Moore, BFM. And uh, if you want to register for that or learn more, check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Drummers Resource. I'm on Instagram at Drummers Resource, on Twitter at Drummers R Source. And if you would leave me a rating or review on iTunes, I would truly appreciate it. It helps get the podcast uh, up into the search results on iTunes. So that always helps help spread the word about the Drummers Resource podcast. And until the next podcast, thank you so much for listening. I really, really do appreciate it. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.